I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. On today's episode, the media, how intrusive can it, should it get? And how has social media turned things inside out? Old-fashioned media is decidedly old-fashioned. The media beast must now be fed 24-7. And it's killing some media businesses. Murdoch has closed more than 100 regional newspapers. AAP is under threat. TV networks are cutting staff. Is the future that grim? Darren Hinch, welcome to your own podcast. Uh, thank you, Tony. Good to be back. Uh, again, uh, today we're going to talk about something that is uh, uh, that both you and I have spent a long period of our lives in, that is the media. The media, yeah. Well, I've been in the media uh, for 60 years. Uh, you started I, where? I started on the Taranaki Herald, a little local paper across the ditch in New Plymouth, New Zealand. It was is it the still old, there? It, yeah, no, it was the oldest daily newspaper in... in founded in New Zealand. Uh, sadly, it is gone. Um, I'm very good at closing newspapers. I worked for the Christchurch Star after that. It's gone. I worked for then became editor of the Sydney Sun. It's gone. Um, and I'm not sure the Waikato Times is either online now or maybe bi-weekly. I'm not sure. But um, that's where I started. So I started in 1960. I actually celebrated my 60 years with a little party here on, on my combined birthday party this year because uh, 60 years in the same business is not bad going. Well, back then there was newspapers which had been around for a long time. There was radio which had been around for, what, 20, 40 years yeah. prior to that. Were you a big radio listener as a, as a kid? Yes, I was. Yeah, Ironically, I'm not only a big radio listener, but I used to – I had a crystal set – that's how old I am. I don't know how we made them, but we got a thing called a crystal set. And late at night, you could tune in your crystal set, and I could listen to Australia, and I could hear a bloke called Bob Rogers on 2UE doing the top 40. And in those days in New Zealand, they only had pop music like once a week, and it was the top 10. The rest of the time, you didn't hear music. I mean, it was just most of the women's talk programs and stuff. You know, and, so uh, you, were, you were a young kid... In New Plymouth. In New Plymouth, yeah. Listening to a crystal radio set to a guy in Australia, in Australia. who would later become my, my a lifelong friend. Lifelong friend, almost like brothers, yeah, and he's he's now 93. Because um, Bob started, I think, in the 1940s. 1945, I think he started, at 3XY, I think is where he started. He's, so he's, and he's still going. He's still broadcasting every Saturday night a six-hour program. Uh, on 2CH in, in Sydney. Uh, so he's, he's, he'd be the oldest radio man in the world. But I, I, wasn't, I didn't have an interest in radio. I mean, listen to it. But uh, I, I guess I must have an interest in newspapers. I used to fight my father to read it first. I'd grab it off the front lawn when it was tossed over the fence. Um, and I found out that I, uh, when I was about 10 or 11, I, I drew my own. I was homesick, and I drew my own local newspaper. I, and I, you know, I remember. And ironically, shows of the vagaries of life. I uh, used a peanut butter jar to draw a circle and make a sun. And I called the newspaper the Sun. And years later, I became the editor of the Sun uh, in Sydney at, at age 32. Um, but I, I, my interest, and I talked about this with, on the Apollo thing. That 
I was fascinated reading about the Apollo stuff in the newspaper. We were syndicating their stories. So I had an interest in newspapers all, all the time. Uh, and I, I used to always like reading the paper. And then I, I, I quit school uh, at 15 and started... Well, why, why did you do that? Were you, were you good at school? I was or? quite good at school, but I was lazy and uh, I was a smart ass. And I just wanted to get in the real world. I wanted to grow up. You know, I, I had no interest in going to university. Uh, I couldn't have afforded to anyway, but I had no interest. And I did the minimum of three years, we called it, uh, uh, school certificate, which is the minimum you could show you completed your schooling, a bit like whatever they call it in Australia now. Um, and so I was about 15 and a half, nearly 16, and uh, so I quit and uh, managed to, uh, ironically, I used to live next door to the news editor of the local paper named Clem Cave. And on Saturdays, I used to cut his lawns. And on Saturday nights, we'd steal his home brew because he'd be upstairs having a party and he kept it in his basement and we'd nick down and steal some. Um, and he asked me if I want to get it, would I be interested in joining a newspaper? And my first response was no, because you'd have to work Saturdays. And we all played football on Saturdays. But anyway, he said, well, I'll get you an interview with the editor. And I went down and had an interview with the editor and uh, got the job. I was one of two cadets hired that year. And so I started. Uh, I started in uh, in 1960 as a cadet. Well, uh, see, that's the thing about cadets and training. When you were a cadet, you were trained really well in all aspects of the. Well, we really the weren't. The, the, the good thing was the sub editor would come out and sh- I, I, the chief, my chief sub, to whom I dedicated one of my books because her name was June Lipman. She, she said she always took an interest in me, and I said. Why, years later, at her retirement, I said, why did you take such an interest in me when the other cadet you didn't sort of didn't bother with? She said, because you would come in and say to me, why did you change this? I'd look at what went, appeared in the paper and what I'd written and say, why, why wasn't that good enough? Why did you change it? And she would explain it. So she had a cadet who wanted to learn. But I only spent two years on that paper and then I quit and... Uh, and went to Christchurch and lied about my age and got a, an upgrade and a better job in the Christchurch Star. And then I left there and went to Hamilton for a few months and got fired from there and uh, always try to get a bit of grading. Um, and anyway, um, yeah, I, was a, I was a passenger. I was a passenger in, uh, in the local f- office car that one of the photographers had borrowed for the weekend and I went to walk them with him and we nearly ran the general manager off the road on the way home and so... Uh, so the photographer got fired and I went in to confess that I was also there. And I said, so I remember saying to the, to the, the American-trained owner called Phil Harkness, I said, to save you the embarrassment of sacking me, I'm about 17, 18, right? to save you the embarrassment of sacking me and me the indignity of being fired, I resign <laughs> as of now, thank you. <laughs> and he said... You beat me by 30 seconds. <laughs> so, And that's when I went back to New Plymouth, my hometown, worked as a wharfie, as a, as a seagull, working on the wharf for a bit, uh, did some landscape gardening to make some money, just to earn enough money to be able to buy a ticket buy, on a merchant ship from Wellington to Sydney and arrived there on... February the 6th, 1963. February 6th, 63. Was that something a lot of New Zealanders were doing coming to Australia yeah, back yeah, then? Yeah. And the funny thing was, my trip from New Plymouth to Sydney, that change in life, was a much bigger ordeal or, or not ordeal, it was wonderful, but it was more of a trauma than going from Sydney to New York. Because you're going from one, from town of 30,000 to a city of 
what, one or two million back then. And so going to New York wasn't any big deal. I mean, Sydney to me was a huge city. Uh, they had one skyscraper. It was the AMP building down on the, down the water. But, and, and to work for a, a Sydney newspaper, tabloid, as a police reporter, boy, you worked hard. And you, 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 you know, you're in competition, the Daily Mirror and the Sun. You got carpeted. If you, they had a story on page one that they reckon you should have had. You know? I mean, I once, on a, on a job, to, went to Wollongong, uh, and I pulled, I think I mentioned this once before, I pulled a guy out of a burning, out of an overturned car with petrol running everywhere. And uh, I got, I missed the edition because I was saving some guy's life. I got carpeted by the news editor saying, you're a journal, not a bloody hero. And that's the way, that's how tough it was. But the big thing about media, how it's changed. Oh, then I went, worked in New York. I was in Canada as a bureau chief in Canada uh, for UPI. And that was wonderful going back to Ottawa when, when I was a politician, I led a delegation to Ottawa, and it was an extraordinary thing. Um, last time I was here was about 1966, and here I am back now as a polit- Australian politician. Um, then I went and lived for about 11 years in New York and covered big stories there. But how how it's all changed? How it's all changed is that social media has has, has changed it dramatically. Now, when I was covering the Apollo shots that I mentioned before. Um, I was working twice a day for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sydney Sun in two cycles. But when you're back in Australia, you work for one paper, you work one cycle. You put the paper to bed like the afternoon paper. It went to bed at 8.30 in the mor- 8 o'clock in the morning and the presses were rolling and rumbling and it was out in the streets by 10. And you'd upgrade a few pages, but that was virtually the paper and you could, you'd go to the pub at yes. lunchtime. Well, but, well, people, the younger generation now, wouldn't realise that there was a paper that came out in the afternoon. So it wasn't just the morning paper yeah. that arrived. In, in, in Melbourne, it was the, uh, the Herald. The Herald. And, and you'd publish edition after edition and the last one would come out with the stock exchange reports at about 4 o'clock, 4.30. Then all the afternoon papers died. And some of the morning papers are struggling, and and you've noticed Murdoch in recent times has has shut down like a hundred regional and suburban papers, uh, and turned them into only um, digital papers, online papers. Um, some of the major ones too. I think the major ones in the end will become digital. Um, if you'd told me a year ago that I would sometimes not read the physical paper, but would see it online and, and on twi- tw- Twitter stories. I would have said, you're joking, because I've read it every day for 60 years. Um, but social media changed all that because suddenly, and it changed for politicians too, suddenly news is 24-7. You know, I mean, you, you don't just... The Prime Minister doesn't have to feed a newspaper a story in the morning and then it just sits till the next morning. What happens is that you've got um, television stations like Sky News and others going hour after hour and and they expect to get people on air hour after hour. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that the, the physical papers made, and I said so at the time, they should never have, when they decided to flirt with online newspapers, they should never have gone, should never have not had a paywall. They should not. I mean, they're giving away their news. And this is before you had Facebook and everybody stealing it from them and, and some other online newspapers stealing their news. They were giving it away. And, and so if that started by saying, yes, you can have the paper online, but it's a subscription, you've got to pay for it because we have to pay our journos. You know, they're not doing it for free. And I think that hurt newspapers a lot. And as social media grew, as Twitter grew, um, with Donald Trump in the White House... Suddenly, the expression fake news came into, into being. Um, 
people often tend these days, especially I'm talking about the younger generation, tend to read online headlines and not the whole story. And the online headline, sometimes clickbait as they call it, the online headline bears no relationship to the real story. So it is is a recipe for misinformation. And it sounds very old and say, I I miss the good old days, but in the good old days of journalism, journalists would, would... really desperate to get things right. I know the image that, oh, you're just all, you know, gunslingers, but you wanted to get it right. You really wanted to, news was news and columns were separated from the news, so you knew what was opinion and what was news. Um, now that's all blurred, you know. Uh, on Some online stuff, it's all opinion, you know, uh, or opinionated. Journalism's always been about trying to get at the truth, yeah. the, tr- the truth of something. What is the truth? Uh, so that people know, you know, uh, they they can judge decisions by government and make their own decisions and vote and democracy operates like that. Is the truth being told to people now by the various medias? By some, by most you hope it is. By some it's probably not. Uh, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who, who talked about truth and facts. He once said, given the choice between government and newspapers, I'd choose the latter every time. And that, you were meant to be there, the newspapers, to give the facts. You know, governments, the word spin is fairly new, but governments are there to put spin on stuff and uh, you're there to, uh, to, um, to supposedly point out when the spin is on. Uh, digressing a little bit, I recall, remind me a bit about my life on 3OW when my main competitor, way ahead of me, was Bert Newton. And... Uh, when and, and one day, when John Wayne died, Bert was on like for two hours talking to Hollywood correspondents about how wonderful John Wayne was and this John Wayne story and that John Wayne story. And I was on 3AW saying that John Wayne once gave $250,000 to a racist presidential campaign of George Wallace. And when he was making the movie The Alamo, a Mexican uh, extra was killed. And John Wayne supposedly said, give the widow... 25 bucks and let's get on with the picture. And Bert and I were discussing this years, ages later. We'd never met. And we met at a, at a, a funeral. Was it Gary Meadows? I think it was. Yeah, Gary Meadows' funeral. And we're at the wake afterwards. And this never, Bert and I had never met. And Bert said to me, he said, he said, why, Darren? Why? 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 Why do you say the things you say? Why do you do the things you do? And I said, Bert, it's quite simple. I said, you're in the business of creating illusions. I'm in the business of destroying them. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of summed up the difference. And two years later, I beat him in the ratings. Uh, and that was it. Another medium is television, which mm. you've been in, involved in. You've done a lot of television. Uh, uh, how do you compare that with uh, radio and newspapers? Look, I, I, and, I, and then the three mediums look, uh, against I, each other. I, I've always loved the medium that I was in at the time. Okay, um, and I love my time in radio, and I love my time in television. A television is is a very powerful medium because it's it's visual. Uh, television ended the Vietnam War. Um, radio didn't. Newspapers didn't. But the sight of all the body bags coming back from Vietnam, the sight of a little girl running down the street screaming, the sight of a of a police chief shooting a Viet Cong guy in the head. In the I believe that Viet, Vietnam War was ended by the nightly television being in Americans' 
um, TV dining rooms, the set being on in the dining room. So television is a very powerful medium. But the problem with television, where radio is better in some ways, is that with television you've got to drag the whole bloody army behind you. You've got, it's getting better now because you've got one man with a little camera on it you know, sometimes. But radio, I used to think of like, he, the radio guy was just like, the boundary rider. He had a bit in his saddlebags, but he could always move fast. And so when something happens in radio, it's in a minute. You don't have to get a crew there. You don't have to get a camera there. You don't have to do anything there. It's just you cross to somebody who's on a phone. Now a mobile phone makes it even easier for radio and television. But back then, it was just radio is instant. And uh, I learned a good lesson uh, about radio and newspapers. And it was when we were covering the, um, uh, the, 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 um, the, the Iraqi war, um, I was one day I was doing drive by the stage on on AW, and I was talking to Peter Arnett, the famous Associated Press reporter, and he was in his hotel in Baghdad, and he I've got him live at like four o'clock in the afternoon, and he suddenly says, "Darren, I can make it official. I can tell you now, Baghdad has fallen." Bang! He's watching out of his hotel room window and calling it to Australia that very second as he saw a tank, an American tank, come into the into Baghdad. Um, so that was four o'clock. Next morning, about seven a.m. or six a.m., I I pick up the age, right? and it's Baghdad has fallen. And I think I don't have to bother reading this because I've known this, and my listeners have known this for um, at least uh, oh, fifteen hours. And that's the problem that that newspapers ultimately had to face. Um, I mean, I made a mistake when I was editor of the Sydney Sun back in the 70s, uh, John Laws was a very powerful radio man, right? And one of the first things you, I made... You called him the pockmark, pockmark Prince, Prince of, of Pain. pain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was a headline. Which he didn't like. Hmm? He, he didn't, didn't like. like. Well, I didn't write that. It was, a, it was a headline that somebody put in the paper I hadn't seen, the pockmark Prince of Pain. And the fact that somebody's had acne is not a very fair way to... He was right to, to complain. But anyway, he was on air. And as editor of the Sun, I made sure that as soon as the paper came out, we shot a copy of The Sun to John Laws, got in a taxi to John Laws. And he would, I realised this later, he'd, just, he'd read it out, you know, the news stories, and often wouldn't credit the paper, just read the story, steal it, use it, and then somebody picks up The Sun on the way home in the train and thinks, hey, I've heard that before. So you're actually working against yourself because you're helping uh, sell radio ads destroying your own product and that comes back the same way of as I said before about online and newspapers giving away their product online because once you've given something to somebody then you start charging for it they get their back up if you've had anything for free you don't like paying for it no matter how good, what good value it is you mentioned there John Laws and I guess he's uh, one of the early pioneers of talkback radio yeah uh, which it started in Melbourne, I'm sure. Ormsby Wilkins, I think, started it, or or the other old man whose name I've forgotten now. Norman Banks. Norman Banks. Yes. They started talk back here. It was in Melbourne before it was in Sydney, um, because at once it was illegal to you know to let people talk on radio, and and when you're doing during political campaigns, you had to get their name and their phone number and their address, but even after talkback started, before you let them on air. I remember once interviewing Malcolm Fraser during an election campaign and and we and he, he said, what, what's the hold up with it? I said, well, you've got to get, I said, it's stupid PM, but you've got to get their name. And he said, 
Why? Let's don't worry about that. Are you prepared to go? I said, oh, if you will, I will. So that was the first time radio had people to air just talking. Well, it, it, just, it just shows you how much they, uh, they, they wanted to control the situation. Mm. Because as I understand it, Robert Menzies delayed television in Australia because he was concerned about the effect it would have on the political discourse. I didn't know that. Uh, that that's what I was uh, told. Uh, Ormsby Wilkins, yeah. uh, 2UE, beat all his competitors to the punch when he took a handful of calls after midnight. On the 17th of April, uh, in one particular year, I don't know when that was, but he was the first. Oh, so Orms- 1967, in, April 1967. Okay. In, in, in 2UE Sydney, huh? Yeah, well, and Ormsby was uh, one of your pre-runners there yes, at 3AW. Three, three, Talkback Radio, Darren, how has that changed uh, media and the way things oh, work I think, politically, I, I think I think it uh, certainly it, it has. The thing you have to watch though during election campaigns are, are the plants, or you know this, they the Labor and Liberal parties would plant uh, bogus uh, callers just to to, to roll, and you got to smell them. You get to, you know, I don't know, you suddenly could you could smell them at times, but it did it gave people an outlet which they didn't have, and I think it's very important that. It, it, Joe Blow had a, had a voice. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that that um, some television news news readers were wearing tuxedos, and everybody, if you're on radio, had to speak like a with a plum in their mouth and sound like they're all born in England. You know, that wasn't that long ago. When I came along, they couldn't believe that a person with a voice like well, mine. Well, in the old days, you had to have a reasonably good voice to be on radio, but you've always had a view about people with good voices. Oh yes, I always said, show me, show me a, a man with a perfect radio voice, and I'll show you a dickhead. <laughs> Poor old, sorry, Craig. Poor old Craig Willis used to hate that expression. <laughs> the the era of the shock jock. Now, you weren't a shock jock. No, and that's you were a journalist yeah. on radio. It really hurts me. Still does. I'm still referred to sometimes. Oh, that hints that's still a shock jock. I was never a shock jock. I mean, I think I probably could have had more listeners if I had been a shock jock. Um, I was a journalist who went from print to radio to television and then back to radio. Um, there were shock jocks. I mean, um, you know. Um, Particularly in America, mm-hmm. in America, oh, yeah. in particular, we had a couple here. You know, Stan Zamanik was, was a shock jock. Yes, know. well, was he, Stan- had, he had he had a book of insults, and he'd flick the page, and, and so he had just a supply of. Well, I always stuff. remember he had a laptop with him. And basically, his entire brain was inside that laptop because <laughs> he'd get his assistant to say nuclear weapons, and he'd have about five lines on nuclear weapons. So, if a caller rang up about nuclear weapons, he'd click on that, and there's his five little points that he wanted to say. So, basically, his entire brain was, was in that laptop. laptop. Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed talkback because it kept you on your toes. And I used to say to people, I didn't want to know ever what the people were going to say, and I used to say to my producers. I heard one once saying, what do, you want, what do you want to say? I said, don't do, ever do that. You say, what do you want to talk about? I want to know what, sometimes what the topic is to keep it so it doesn't jump all over the place. I said, but don't ever say to somebody, what are you going to say? Because it makes it sound like we're trying to control them and, and only put into air calls we wanted. Well, yeah, you, you had this view, and it's the right view. People ring up, they want to say they, they, they should get on here. I mean, there was, uh, I, mean, I want to make this a podcast topic at some stage, and that is the, the death of David Hooks. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. Um, you know, that was, you were in the middle of all that as well, because you, you actually broadcast details about a relationship that he had with somebody else. Yeah. And, uh, and the calls were then vetted. Was that the only time when you did an editorial? And you call for people to ring up, yeah. and no one rang about that because they were vetted. I, I didn't know they'd been vetted. 
I didn't know till now, actually, that they were vetted. Um, I presume the station just, just obviously blocked it, just blocked every call. Well, yeah, not to talk about that. that, that, yeah. that, that yeah. Um, yeah. Let's leave it. We'll, we'll do that as a topic. Yes. Like, yeah. we, we can broaden it too as other areas of where the goes and the no-goes and where you're not meant to go and where you do go well, sometimes. Well, that's right. That, that'd yeah. be a good one, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but back to, back to, quickly back to online, it has changed media dramatically. I mean, I now read newspapers on, on my on my screen. Uh, I get a lot Not of, only that, you can read newspapers from all over the well, world. That's what I do. See, I, I like Twitter because I'll see a story mentioned by the Washington Post. I hit on that and the story comes Well, up. I remember when you first got on Twitter and you were a bit sceptical about it and you yeah. weren't sure whether to do it or not. And I said, Darren, it's a great way of giving you access to stories and articles that you would never in a, in, in a million years come across. Normally, yeah. but when you see something there with the Washington Post, and then you click onto it, there's the story. Yeah, and, and sometimes I'll get a I'll get a, uh, a text message from from Jackie Weaver saying, "Hey, good story in the LA Times, da da da." And so you just hit the button, and and there it is. Um, I, I'm thinking back, talking about Twitter. I remember thinking, I wonder if I'll ever get to a thousand followers. Right, and I think it's about seventy five thousand now. But yeah, and there are all sorts of things on Twitter you shouldn't do. You shouldn't ask. You shouldn't beg for for. for <laughs> People say, "Oh, I'm a hundred short of five thousand. I need yeah. more followers. I need yeah. more followers. I, I think that's a no-no on Twitter. The danger we have, uh, and and I, I am a an aficionado of Twitter, uh, and I use it, and I use it a lot, to and fro, um, is that people believe. Just you can't take everything at face value. You know, there's photoshopping that goes on that you just. I think with Twitter, you've got to be increasingly sceptical. Well, um, this is where we come to Donald Trump. Who's, who's used Twitter as president before he was president? Now, not everything Donald Trump says on Twitter is the truth. No, he's a, he's a, he's a, and a very adept liar, one could say, or yeah. bender of the truth. So, if you are the owner of Twitter, what do you do about that? Do you just well, the allow that on. truth to go out? Sometimes, lately, Twitter has said, even about the president, like check the veracity of this or words to that effect, you know, or you should be sceptical is it, is, it, is it Twitter's role to do that? Well, they are the publisher, and there's a danger well, here. Well, there's the other argument. Yeah, are well, they, are they a publisher or do they just provide yeah, the but, platform? Well, look, if the decision being made in court cases here in Australia, not that long ago, that if you, like at Facebook, you're responsible for what goes on your page. Now, you can't be watching it 20 hour, 24 hours a day, but technically you are the publisher. So if somebody defames somebody else on my Facebook page, and I don't make uh, serious attempts to get rid of it, then I am I am liable, and it has cost us, uh, the rules being made involving several hundred thousands of dollars. It is an issue that they'll go on around and around, you know, chicken and the egg sort of thing. But um, you are responsible. I mean, I find myself. I, I thought for a while never block anybody and also let everything go to air sort of thing because it's an open forum. But now I block people sometimes and if if, 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 if if material is really offensive, I'll delete it, I'll hide it. Uh, and I, I tell people I have two Facebook pages. One is my own personal one, Friends, which only allowed 5,000 people to join up apparently, uh, there's a restriction. But the other one is a Justice Party page on which I editorialise and I let far more stuff go on the Justice Party page because it is political and people should be allowed to view, air their political views which are not the same as mine. But if it's defamatory or if it's really foul, I'll, I'll, I'll have no hesitation in hiding it or blocking it. Where does the media go from here, Darren, just uh, 
you know, we've seen local newspapers, regional papers closing down. Look, that's the tragic thing because community newspapers are, are, are named that for a reason. They are part of the community. It's like community radio. I mean, it's really sad to me, not only the fact that many journos who went on a fame and fortune started out on small papers. I started on a paper circulation 10,000, you know, and became editor of a paper with a circulation of nearly 400,000. Um, but local material, I know that the Murdoch people have said that, don't worry, they'll all become digital and they'll be absorbed into the bigger papers like Herald Sun will cover those local stories. In fact, they won't. Because you know that metropolitan Melbourne doesn't give a damn about a story in, in, in Ballarat unless it's salacious or something. Um, and you'll find they will wither away. And, and a sign of that is that some of these regional papers that are, that are still alive, that are still digital, they won't even have their own website. They'll be absorbed into like the major parties' websites like the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. That means they will disappear because uh, the people... The guy who runs the, the Herald Sun website isn't going to give a damn about something in, in Shepparton. And all those little things like the, oh, it sounds corny, the, the flower show results and the who's getting engaged and who's doing this and so-and-so just bred the biggest bullies ever had. But they were part of the community and they held communities and regional and farming communities together. And I find that is going to be a terrible loss. I hope that some people, locals, will manage to find some money and start their own paper to fill the gap. I noticed this one just started called the Horsham Times, which I wish them well, because you hope that locals, uh, there'll be plenty of printing presses lying around, that they can maybe do a deal with some of the big people. I mean, this this pushes on to uh, I mean, things like AAP. It, it uh, You won't be that many years away when physical newspapers will not exist. It'll all be digital. As it is, they're advertising shrinking because the ads are going to uh, online. And so they even, I mean, you, you would have, people think I'm crazy, but who would have thought years ago if I'd said to you, the Melbourne Herald won't exist? You know, this, is, this was the paper, the Herald, you know, and it just disappeared without trace. So wire services, what's the future of wire services? Well, um, I, I, I was a bureau chief for United Press International uh, in Toronto, Toronto, at one stage back in the 60s. Uh, and it's a very, it's a sweatshop way to work. You've got to be fast, you've got to be accurate, you've got to be good. But um, it was a great training ground and, and they provide, for many papers, they provide an amazing service. Well, explain. I, I mean, AAP, which had its problems in Australia, um, that, that, that was the, the lifeblood for many papers. I mean, big papers often don't have court reporters uh, covering... Uh, suburban courts, uh, or even smaller city courts, the, all that sort of stuff. That's the danger. If all wire services disappear, uh, you, 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 it, it'll be it'll be uh, consumers' loss because we they are needed. Uh, Associated Press, United Press International, Reuters, uh, you know all those. Uh, we used to have a joke about about Reuters when I was in the um, news agency business. We used to talk about Reuters, uh, their bureau. Uh, in, in the Far East, right? We should say, we may be last, but we're always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because speed was of the essence. You know, if you if you got a story 90 seconds after the, the rocks, they called it, which was short for opposition, uh, pox was for police, because in those days, everything was done on telegram, and telegrams cost money. So the wire services developed all these expressions to save money. And I still use those expressions. I'll still say... Uh, send something sapist 
And sappus is a word meaning as soon as possible. So that's one penny rather than four pennies, you know, for uh, four words. And so, yeah, so rocks was opposition, pox was police. It was, and it was, it was a whole whole world, a whole world of, a uh, new world of, of, of wordage. And, and I, I tell you a wire service story. A, um, and I don't think this is apocryphal, but New York was the headquarters of AP and UPI. And there's a guy out there, they used to say, make it, make, make what you write, make it readable and understandable for the Kansas City milkman, right? A guy wrote a book called The Kansas City Milkman. Can he read and understand what you're writing? You know, now, How will it play in Peoria, Illinois? How will it play? Anyway, this guy's in a little country town, a little small town, a UPI bureau in the US. And uh, whenever they, a message came in, a bing, bing, you'd hear the bing, bing, bing going on your teleprinter, you know, bing, 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 bing. And at one stage... He's flustered, he's behind the eight ball and you had to have everything on tape and you had to be reams of printed you know, punch hole tape going around everywhere. And so finally, he's getting a bit under the, under the weather and he's one person, one man bureau, and he finally writes to his, to, to his supervisor in New York and says, stop binging, I've only got one pair of hands, <laughs> right? And he gets very soon, he gets a, a note back, bing, bing, from, from New York, not from his editor, but from the boss, the big boss, and he just said, fire the crippled bastard. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how tough he used to be. You know? Well, information is something that uh, people will always want. Yes. It, it just depends on how they get it. Um, and the scary thing is, the, uh, I mean, we've seen, we've seen in recent times journos being beaten up by cops in the streets of America and I blame Donald Trump partly for that. I mean, he calls it fake news. He call, he's actually said the media are the enemy when they're not, you know. Um, and some of the uh, – and, 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 and Trump has done a terrible disservice in that, in many ways, but in that way because he, uh, he – I'm not sure. I'm pretty, I think he probably coined the phrase fake news, you know, or the lamestream media, you know. He, he attacks them again and again and again. And uh, – I think it'll take a long time. I mean, we've always been down there with used car salesmen and politicians on the least trusted or least least respected um, occupations, but but Trump hasn't helped. Darren Hinch, thank you for your time again. Thanks, today. mate. Good to talk.